Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Given the fact that we've had outback stores for a long time, I'm just really disappointed that the pre-planning wasn't done to ensure ready access to healthy and affordable food. These shops are still charging $15 for a bloody cauliflower. I mean, our people need access to fresh produce and they need now more than ever healthy food to keep their immunity systems up. Food security, medical supplies and isolation, the challenges facing Indigenous communities. And stay safe, stay home, social distancing issues for the homeless and incarcerated. There's a multitude of issues going on for our communities, from elders in community to children to behaviour by police and the targeting from police towards Aboriginal people to people in prisons and their lack of access to what everyone else seems to have and that is a way to kill the virus and that is to have clean hands. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. As the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic continues, Australia has so far avoided the catastrophic spread of the virus seen overseas, largely due to strict social distancing, travel restrictions and a nationwide shutdown of non-essential services. However, the serious threat the virus poses to remote Indigenous communities remains a concern, with inadequate health care, staffing shortages and overcrowded housing. To provide an update on the situation, I'm joined by CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Pat Turner. Arnie Pat, welcome back to Speaking Out and thanks for your time. You've continued to be at the front line during this crisis, but last time we spoke to you, you weren't doing so well health-wise. Have you picked up? I'm doing fine now, thank you. I'm still on medication, but that's good. I'm self-isolating and working from home. What impact has the virus been having on remote Indigenous communities so far? Well, uh, marked in terms of the influx of people being sent back from regional centres to communities where we've already got overcrowded housing and, you know, the lack of facilities generally in Aboriginal communities makes it very difficult to cater for a further influx of family coming back from the town, like Alice Springs or Tennant Creek or Kununurra or Broome. I mean, it just makes it hard for the smaller communities to accommodate those people. So the houses are even more overcrowded. Where you might have had 10 people, you've now got 15 or 20 sharing a three-bedroom house. So you can imagine the impact of that on the health hardware in the house which generally isn't very good anyway. But with more people, very little maintenance occurring. You know, there may be some essential workers, but you can imagine how difficult it is. One of the big issues that's arisen is food security to remote communities. So it's just incredible that it's taking too long, in my opinion, to sort that out. And the reliance on Woolworths and Coles, I would have thought that there were other grocery and food suppliers that could be used more innovatively and probably at a better price. But nevertheless, thank God I'm not responsible for food security, but NIAA is, and they are working with the Outback Stores and other organisations like the Arnhem Land Progress 
association that does a lot of food security in the top end of the Northern Territory. And land councils, of course, have made their voices very well heard during this because, you know, they represent many of the landowners in those remote areas. So it's been a bit of a debacle in my view and it should have been planned much better and way ahead of waiting for that to become an issue. It should have been in the planning. A National Indigenous Advisory Committee has been established to help give advice around these issues. How is the work of that committee going and are there recommendations being picked up? Well, they've published a plan, which is very important, and recommendations are being worked through on that. The wheels of bureaucracy move very slowly. I was told almost two weeks ago that the Army were out there consulting in remote areas about logistics, uh, say South Australia, for example, for the APY lands. And I understand that some discussions have been held, but I haven't seen any action on the ground yet. I'm hoping that that's just occurring but I don't know what the nature of that is. And I haven't seen much visibility of where else the Army is engaging with our remote communities and our services in those areas to provide additional assistance with, say, tents for isolation facilities and so on. In those remote areas, because we have such limited facilities and we're in lockdown and for very good reasons in terms of preventing this virus getting into our communities, The clinics can't operate as normal, so they need to do a lot of assessment outside the clinic with the right protective gear, especially testing for COVID-19. And then if someone has suspect symptoms, they have to be isolated and there has to be a facility available that's appropriate for them while they're waiting test results and they've got the symptoms. And then there are those who may test positive, who will test positive, who do have to be in another isolation facility to enable the treatment to happen. So we're not just talking about one facility. We need at least three other isolation facilities per community. And this is going to become even more urgent when COVID gets in, which it will if the restrictions are lifted too early in Australia. Annie Pat, you've obviously been looking at the remote areas with particular concern for very good reason. Aboriginal people around the country, Torres Strait Islander people around the country, are in a high-risk area. And I was wondering what sort of issues are being raised about our mob who are living in regional areas or yeah. in the urban areas. Yeah. Well, I'm equally concerned. I don't care where any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person lives. They are all valuable and they all have to have the right level of healthcare at this time. So because we've got so many people with comorbidities or chronic diseases, and one person can have more than one chronic disease at any given time, and you know there's just such a high prevalence of this in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations, no matter where they live, Louisa, whether they live in the city, or whether they live in a large regional town, or whether they live in a discrete Aboriginal community, doesn't matter. Every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person is vulnerable in this situation. So I wrote to all of our member services this week about continuity of care, especially for vulnerable patients that are on our books, to make sure that we're not neglecting them. And children 
Now, children who get sick, not from COVID, but from any illness, can go downhill very rapidly and they have to have ready access to our primary health care mm-hmm. services. So I'm getting reports in daily to let me see you know, exactly what is happening because we've been forced in many cases to move to telehealth. And my concern is that you can't take blood pressure over the phone. And the monitoring of chronic health conditions, I'm pleased to say so far with the reports that I've received, is continuing with outreach services in many cases where our doctors and nursing and Aboriginal health practitioners are going into the homes of these vulnerable patients and making sure that their treatment is kept up to date. So I'm very proud of the work that the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services are doing. They're just phenomenal with their very limited resources. So to date, the only direct funding that has come from the Commonwealth into our services to cope with COVID is around $15 million extra. And, you know, most of that has been channeled to remote because of the extraordinary dangers of COVID getting into a population and devastating it. But we need much more financial assistance from the government to cover our staffing, no matter where our service is, because you can see with the general population that frontline staff are going down with COVID because of the contact. And if that happens in our services, we have to have the capacity to replace them. Going into remote areas, we need them to self-isolate. If they're coming from outside the biosecurity isolated zones, they must be properly self-isolated for two weeks and cleared of any medical danger before they can go into a community. And they have to self-isolate coming out. Now, that's money. You know, you have to pay people while that's happening. You can't just expect them to sit in an isolated facility for two weeks waiting to be cleared health-wise themselves and then go into a remote community. And you must do this. This must be happening everywhere. And I think that there's an attitude in government that we'll just carry this as a part of our existing services. Well, it's not a part of our existing services. And we need to get the money to supplement our workforce. So we estimate that that's around $50 million in additional funds that we require. And, you know, I could go on and on about the things that are needed. And this week, Commonwealth Ministers announced the rolling out of 83 rapid testing equipment, which is excellent, but I want it for every single Aboriginal medical service in this country. Every single medical service has got to have it. The majority of cases that we have on our hands have been in large regional towns or in the cities. I think most of the positive cases are city-based and our health services need that rapid testing facility. Now, these are special machines that some of our services already had because they can test for other illnesses and they are valuable machines to have. There's a new cartridge that's been developed in conjunction and the Kirby Institute's been working with our contacts in this area, Professor James Ward and and others in the Archo sector, and they have been absolutely exemplary. I must, you know, I'm just so full of praise for the Kirby Institute on this and so grateful. But 83 machines is far from what is required.
But the value of these machines is you can get a test result within 45 minutes, which we have it right there in the community, providing that you've got the training to do the testing and you've got all the protective gear for our staff to use and the proper facility to do the testing in. And just because our communities aren't highly visible in the Australian community doesn't mean that it's not important that our people have access to the testing regime and we need it now, not tomorrow, not two weeks' time. We have been talking to the government about these 83 machines for several weeks and I hope that the distribution will be direct and that where we have respiratory clinics already established, like IUE has opened in Caboolture this week, our health service in the southeast Queensland region, that they will get the testing machines there at the same time. Arnie, Pat, you've had a really long history of working in the public service at very senior levels. In fact, at times you've been the highest ranked Indigenous public servant. And now you're working at the coalface with the community controlled organisations. You've been a strong advocate around the need for partnership between government and the community controlled sector. And I'm wondering if given your enormous expertise in this area, you could talk really specifically about what you're seeing in the health area now that really backs up what the evidence is showing about the need for community-controlled organisations to be taking the lead in an area like health during a crisis like this. Oh, well, you know, yes, absolutely. It's just been unbelievable. Now, we do have a good partnership with the Commonwealth Department of Health, but we're dealing primarily with the bureaucrats who have themselves been excellent. I can't fault them. But what I can fault is the decisions taken higher up by the government to allocate the resources that we've asked for. And I'm not happy that it takes so long for ministers to respond. We've laid our case out very clearly. Now, the good thing is that when NACHO put in the national position paper to get the designated isolated zones in remote, that was acted upon very promptly because it was just common sense, as clear as crystal, and we sent it directly to the national cabinet members, the prime minister, premiers and chief ministers themselves. And we had a decision very quickly, you know, of course it takes time to get the legislation right, but the fact of the matter is the biosecurity legislation was used and the isolated zones are in place. There's been a few teething problems with the poorest borders and now I'm thinking, oh, well, they can just drive up the road and outside their designated zone. Well, you know, we've made it clear that you can't do that. Please don't do that. You're not only endangering yourselves, but you're endangering the community you're going into and going back to. So just be a bit patient and try to keep yourselves happy at home. And there's a few other issues like the food security matters and things like that, which is still a very major concern. So given the fact that we've had outback stores for a long time and so on, I'm just really disappointed that the pre-planning wasn't done to ensure ready access to healthy and affordable food. You know, these shops are still charging $15 for a bloody cauliflower. And it's ridiculous. I mean, our people need access to fresh produce and they need now more than ever healthy food to keep their immunity system up to fight off. And now we're leading into the flu season. So our services are doing everything they can 
so that every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person who has access to our services are now getting their flu uh, vaccines. And it is most important for any other Aboriginal people who don't live close to a health service or don't use one of our health services to make sure that if they haven't bothered about flu vaccines before, that they certainly bother about it this year. Anyone from six months old right through must have the flu vaccine because if you don't and we get the double whammy of COVID and flu, we will lose many more lives than we are able to prevent if people do the right thing and everyone gets the flu vaccine. For those over 60, they should also be getting the pneumococcal vaccine at the same time. Now, it knocks you around a bit, but it's better to have the vaccines than not to have them. So please, I'm begging everyone to do that. Our services are doing their best. We've got problems with supply, which I've raised with the department this week, and ask them to sort that out as a high priority. And they are onto it, so that's good. Arnie, Pat, just finally this evening, it's been a challenging time for all of us and you've given a lot of really great advice on what governments and the sector should be doing. But I was wondering, on a personal level, do you have advice for those out there who are struggling with being in isolation? How are you coping with it and what's your advice? This is the time to be patient, kind and think of how you can do things to make it easier for all of you in isolation. So phone calls to family on a regular basis, listening to the radio, you know, don't sit there like a couch potato just watching TV all day and night. But at night, I must say, I turn off the phone as much as I can. Healthline for people who are feeling really depressed, Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Headspace, all of these things. And our services have got the connection for people to get counselling if they need it because we're very aware of the multiple pressures that our people are under and whereby they might need just to talk to a counsellor and, you know, the services are certainly out there. But most of the support, as usual, comes from within the family and it's a matter of everybody trying to use these times to do, as my chair says, long-distance yarning around the home, practising social distancing. But, you know, when we all get together and we have a big yarn up and we can laugh and whatever, we have to do that. Arnie, Pat, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out tonight. My pleasure. Thank you, Larissa. Arnie, Pat Turner is the CEO of the National Community Controlled Health Organisation, or NACHO. Speaking Out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. As Australians continue to adapt to social distancing and isolation restrictions, concerns have been raised over the policing of the measures, which can often be at the discretion of officers. New quarantining rules can result in on-the-spot fines, while failing to take into account the problems faced by societies most marginalised. So, while we're all being urged to stay safe by staying home, how do you stay safe if you have no home? Lydia Thorpe is Australia's Indigenous Rights Lead for Amnesty International, and she joins me now. Lydia, thanks for joining us on Speaking Out this evening. My pleasure. Nice to be here. You were the first Aboriginal woman in the Victorian Parliament. So from that perspective, you've got a very unique understanding of the possibilities and limitations of government. From that perspective, how do you think the federal and the Victorian state government are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic? 
Well, I think that what people don't consider, I think, is that Aboriginal people in this country have faced enormous injustice for the last 250 years. The human rights injustice against Aboriginal people has been ongoing for two centuries. And this pandemic has only exacerbated these issues in all of our communities. It's affecting all of our people. And that's because successive governments over time have never, ever addressed these human rights injustices, such as overcrowding in people's homes, the constant chronic disease in our communities, the over-incarceration of our people, the removal of children. None of those things have ever been addressed. And so that only exacerbates a pandemic like this. And now we're seeing an absolute crisis and there's no real state or territory or even federal government adequate response at this time in this country with First People. What have you been hearing from communities and elders across the country in your role at Amnesty International about the impact of COVID-19? Well, it's been quite overwhelming, actually. I've been hearing from communities in my amnesty role, but I've also been hearing from communities in my activist presence in communities. And they're basic survival necessities that our people are asking for, such as urgent medical supplies, PPE, personal protection products, which aren't in our communities basic necessities like blankets and pillows and towels because homes are so overcrowded and and what's happening particularly um, if we talk about Northern Territory for a minute, police are telling Aboriginal people in Alice Springs to go back where they come from and so that is increasing the overcrowding and, and all sorts of other issues in some of those communities that people are going back to. So Uh, If we talk about APY as an example, the Greyhound bus is arriving each day with people coming out of Alice and going into these communities without being checked and, you know, rocking up to these already overcrowded homes. Some have substance issues with no support, no drug and alcohol support, no clinics in these communities to be able to deal with this increase in the population. So elders are reaching out saying that they're scared. They're saying that government aren't listening to elders. They have expert medical opinions saying that they are unsafe in these communities as a result of this influx of people. And so there hasn't been any response to date for a lot of our communities and they're feeling quite vulnerable and obviously isolated, but also the fact that they can't socially distance. You know, one example is a two-bedroom home of an elder and having 20 people already living in that house. And so when the Greyhound bus arrives, that 20 people turns into 25 people. And so the elder with chronic disease is in extreme danger of the pandemic or COVID. So government aren't listening. Community are quite concerned about not having the communication that they need right now. 
Uh, a lot of our people don't have internet access or even the device to access internet. So, you know, there's a beautiful thing happening on social media where a lot of Aboriginal people are communicating across the country, but there's also a lot of our people that don't have access to that social connection or even the updates of what's happening on social media. And so they're, they're left in the dark and they're left with anxiety and worrying about their future. This is also a time where we've seen an increase in the powers given to police. And as we mentioned earlier, one of those additional powers is to issue on-the-spot fines in a number of states and territories. What issues do you see arising from that? Well, there's a number of concerns around that given, you know, Aboriginal people are usually targeted by police through profiling and, and we've seen a lot of that over the last 50, 60 years where there's been an absolute increase in deaths in custody um, and the incarceration rate of our people. And I've heard from particular areas in New South Wales where a lot of our people are being fined. People who are homeless are being fined. If we go over to WA, people are, are getting move-on notices. These are homeless people who have nowhere to go. So I think that there hasn't been a strategy or even a thought into how we're going to accommodate a lot of our people who are homeless or at risk. And so they're a target for police in this, I believe, this law and order kind of narrative that police have. I think that it's not working and it's putting our people at more risk. And if we go into the prisons, they also are experiencing, you know, all sorts of injustices, including not even having soap to wash their hands. So we're hearing from prisoners themselves about the need for basic necessities to keep their hands clean, and that's soap. So there's a multitude of issues going on for our communities, from elders in community to children to behaviour by police and the targeting from police towards Aboriginal people to people in prisons and their lack of access to what everyone else seems to have and that is a way to kill the virus and that is to have clean hands. Lydia, you're obviously looking at a health crisis as it's happening and you've got a very long list there of issues that are of concern have you had any ability to think about what the challenges might be when we come out of the immediate crisis and we're in a kind of new world? Do you have concerns about what might become the new normal? I'm actually quite hopeful of what will happen after the pandemic. I think that right now the rest of the Australian community are seeing the injustice towards first people in this country with those absolute necessities to survive as people. And I'm hopeful that the rest of the country will get on board and be part of fighting against the many injustices Aboriginal people face in this country. So I'm hopeful and I'd like to look forward and come together as a nation to stamp out these injustices so that we can move forward together as a nation. I mean, yeah, this pandemic has certainly highlighted a lot of things and I only see that as an opportunity to bring people along and call for 
better housing in our communities, better access to resources, to self-determining communities that have their own solutions in going forward. You know, one of the beauties that's come out of this is people have really band together and, and worked out strategies that will keep them safe. Even though government aren't listening to that at the moment, it just shows that, you know, we have the solutions in our own communities. And if only governments listen to that and listen to our old people and listen to those leaders in those communities, not the leaders that are um, chosen by the government, but those leaders on the ground in those communities, then I think that we can see some of those injustices hopefully end. So I, I am hopeful. I think we have to be hopeful. And I think that also out of this, we're seeing a lot of people standing up and speaking out against these injustices. I have to say, it has been one really strong theme with talking to people like yourself who are working very closely with people on the front line, is that for all the issues raised by the crisis, the community itself has been incredibly resilient and strong in terms of finding their own solutions. Are you seeing that around the country? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, being on a Zoom meeting with elders in remote communities and hearing their stories and, you know, some people have never been on a, a Zoom meeting before and we're having laughs and, you know, we're hearing about the absolute crises that are going on in these communities, but we're also having a bit of a laugh and, and connecting and showing that, you know, we need to unite so that we can elevate those voices and highlight the amount of injustice that's going on in those communities. So, yeah, absolutely. We're seeing elders who have access to the internet or a device getting on social media and coming up with in-language songs about washing hands. So, yeah, from crises, there is some beautiful stories coming out and I'm hoping that when this is all over with that we will have a more connected society, Aboriginal society through our song lines that have been there forever and that we can continue to fight together to allow our people to have the basic human rights that they deserve as the first people of their country. Just finally tonight, Lydia, we're obviously all coping with the required social distancing measures and the disruptions to our routines. But how have you been coping with the required social distancing and the need to change the way that you've done things? Uh, I'm coping okay. I'm lucky to have a backyard and a front yard. So I alternate between the two so I don't get sick of the same sight. I'm homeschooling my 12-year-old and, you know, her first day was a bit of a meltdown, but we got over that. You know, we're staying connected through social media and checking on old people and, you know, I've done a couple of toilet paper deliveries to our old people. I even organised a delivery of firewood for an elder who wanted to do a smoking ceremony just because they were feeling down and needed a, a fire to feel good again. So those kinds of things keep me going. And unfortunately, working for human rights of our people keeps me busy because we are experiencing such an injustice still today. And I think just keeping busy keeps me sane. So, yeah, I think we need to maintain that connection and, and not forget who we are, where we come from and, and how our stories and our connection to one another and our land it's so important at this time and we need to maintain that to continue our survival. 
Well, Lydia, thank you so much for your advocacy and for taking the time tonight to join us on Speaking Out to talk about your work. My pleasure. Thank you. Lydia Thorpe is Australia's Indigenous Rights Lead for Amnesty International. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. For many Australian families working from home, the federal government's childcare subsidy package is providing some welcome relief. But for Indigenous service providers in the sector, current funding arrangements remain a major concern. You'll hear more from the country's peak community-controlled childcare agency shortly, but right now it's time for a short musical break. Here is Christine Arnu with Sunshine on a Rainy Day.
That's Christine Arnu with Sunshine on a Rainy Day. The song features on her second album, Come My Way, which she released back in 2000. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. As you heard earlier in the program, government restrictions have slowed the rate of coronavirus cases across the country, but experts are warning us to remain vigilant to prevent further outbreaks. As such, many parents have begun the new normal by working from home and isolating with family. This was made easier by the federal government's free childcare scheme announced earlier this month, a move met by widespread approval and community uptake. But not-for-profit Indigenous childcare providers are expressing their frustration over funding arrangements within the sector. Richard Weston is the CEO of the National Secretariat of Aboriginal and Islander Childcare. Richard, thanks for your time this evening. As the CEO for the peak body around Indigenous childcare and protection, what have you seen more broadly happen in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities during this COVID health crisis? Well, I think I've seen a lot of positive action take place, I think, to for communities and Aboriginal services to gear themselves up and deal with the unfolding situation. I think I've been quite inspired by some of the things I've seen and some of the conversations I've had with services but I think overall there's a still a concern for many communities you know with high Aboriginal populations so remote rural and regional communities across the country I guess I have a connection with the Broken Hill area and communities in the in the Murdy Parky region because it's where I worked for a long time so I've been talking to people out there and there's concerns about, you know, the highways that go through those towns and what tourists and people uh, travelling along those routes might bring into some of the smaller places like Old Kenya or Menindee and how difficult, if a virus does get in there, how difficult it will be to manage things like staying isolated, the overwhelming impact on the health system, that they're running small hospitals and health services. If there is an outbreak, how will that be managed and how will people be helped through that? So those have been the things that have caused me to lose a bit of sleep. But I think in spite of that, in spite of those concerns, I think our communities and our Aboriginal controlled services across the border are doing a pretty remarkable job in you know staying open and staying as connected to the community as they can. Even though our people, we are a vulnerable group, so all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at greater risk of COVID, but people are still turning up for work in their health services in any early childhood and education and care centres, and it's really important that they have access to the stuff, the protective gear that's going to keep them safe, keep children safe and keep their families safe. Just moving now specifically to the area that you're working in most closely at the moment around childcare and protection, what are your main concerns about the impact of the pandemic on that area? Well, I guess there's two areas where we're sort of really closely trying to uh, stay across, and that's early childhood education and care, so early childhood centres. And they initially were struggling with the funding arrangements, so there were concerns at services that the whole sector might have to close down or that was in imminent collapse. But there was a subsidy rescue package announced on April the 2nd, and so that's been rolling out. We don't know the impact of that, but it seems that services are doing a bit better now financially. But I think where those services are employing Aboriginal people, concern is for their safety and then for the safety of, of the children that come into those 
centres and their families. I think services are really looking for a good, strong and regular supply of things like hand sanitizer and gloves. They're really looking for a responsive Department of Education so that when they have concerns about trying to navigate the funding arrangements so that they are able to keep their service open and abide by the directions, that they're able to get that advice quickly. So there are a couple of the concerns and then there's just some of the different models. I mean, it's such an ad hoc way the sector is uh, structured and funded. It makes it difficult for some services to access the subsidised support. Some of them aren't standalone services inside bigger organisations. So it's been a little bit confusing, I think. So really having a good flow of information has been important, but it's not clear if that's working yet. So we've been holding regular teleconferences with that sector the early years sector for the last couple of weeks and really trying to get a handle on how they're coping and feeding that back into the Department of Education. We're just hopeful that as you know the funding becomes available and it rolls out that services are able to continue to operate, keep their doors open and so survive this pandemic period but are also viable beyond that you know, and that kids are getting access to the care they need, they're staying connected to their culture and their community. And for these early childhood services, we need Aboriginal people in those places working, but they have to be kept safe. I just wanted to drill down a little bit into that because I think it's really important just to draw out why it's important that these culturally safe care providers remain open. So I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about your views around that. Look, I think just to give a bit of context that the system they operate in, so this is early childhood, so kindy, preschool, that sort of stuff, and then there's childcare. So there's two elements to these early years services. And the fact that they're there, they support a lot of vulnerable families. So many of our services are supporting families and communities that experience vulnerability. So that might be some kids who are in touch with the out-of-home care system. It might be other things going on in families, you know, social problems and social issues that communities and families are trying to manage. So it's it's important to have these places where children continue their early education and development, are cared for, they're nurtured, they're surrounded by Aboriginal people, they're surrounded by culture, they're surrounded by all the things that honour and, and respect and support their identity as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. So these services are providing a critical element to the safety, wellbeing and development of our children and who are in vulnerable circumstances. Unfortunately, the system that they're funded through, I don't think does enough to recognise the vulnerability of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and communities. They're funded, it's a user-pay system, it's designed for working families so it's designed for the sort of middle class, you know, working mainstream family and that doesn't suit all of our Aboriginal services. And services are funded on the numbers that are attending. Subsidies are managed not necessarily through the service, they're managed through the, the families that are using the service and families don't always turn up. So it's not as straightforward as it seems, but I think these early childhood services, they're supporting early education, they're supporting early, early years care and they're preparing children for those important steps into primary school education and they have to be valued. I think a lot of our politicians see these early years services simply as babysitting services and that's so far from what they actually are. 
The work that SNAKE has been doing has often focused a lot on early intervention to assist families in crisis to avoid having to have children removed and put in out-of-home care. I was just wondering what you see going into the future, given the impact of this pandemic, on how you and the Aboriginal community-controlled sector are going to be responding to early intervention. Well, I think to have a proper program and policy response to intervening early requires the government, the decision makers, to really prioritise those early years from pregnancy right through to birth and then those first thousand days and beyond. So you need the right policy settings, you need the right sense that that's a priority from governments, both state and federal. So that's really important. So that's something that SNAKE is working with a whole range of other other services beyond that, just outside of the Aboriginal community control sector, but to get those early years prioritised as a major priority because what happens to children in those early years, as we know, it sets them up. If they have a good experience in those early years, then it's a strong predictor that the rest of their lives is going to be positive, but at the same token, they're at great risk being affected by issues like intergenerational trauma and violence and other factors that go on in families and communities. And we really need to understand those historical impacts of trauma, what are the risks for children and and their families and communities. And we need to have services, we need to have workforces that are trained up and aware of those impacts and can respond appropriately. And at the moment, we just don't have enough of that knowledge in our workforces around the country. So those are areas I think that there needs to be greater investment in, in training and educating a really powerful Aboriginal workforce. I think we need good programs that are responsive to those complexities of trauma. Trauma, it's not just one issue, it's usually a combination of issues that are impacting on families and and the children that are living in those families. So we need to have a workforce that can support families. We need families to have an understanding of, of those issues as well so they can be part of that solution. And we need really strong early years sector. We need a greater investment in it. We need to elevate the standing of the people that work with our children and they need a proper qualification, they need proper salaries. This is a whole range of things that have to happen, I think, for that to get better. But it's the organisations like VACA and Quatsip in Queensland and ABSEC in New South Wales that are doing the heavy lifting there. You know, they're dealing with these vulnerable families in our community, supporting them. And in terms of the child protection system where they operate, they're having, I think, a greater impact and reunification and bringing children out of that system and back into their families. So I think recognising and seeing that uh, that's a strong case for greater investment and for growing the Aboriginal community control sector, particularly in, in the early years and around child protection and other, other children's issues. Just in a way emphasising how well-placed our own community organisations are at dealing with some of these issues. You mentioned early on about one of the things that has been a good surprise during this pandemic has been how resilient and responsive Aboriginal communities, organisations and workers have been. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in terms of the positive community response. Well, I think communities are just getting on with it. I think they've implemented you know, social distancing measures in many of the early childhood centres. You know, they're meeting parents at the door, they're bringing their children in, they're doing their best to maintain the hygiene regime, so plenty of hand washing and use of gloves and so forth, and really just keeping children safe and continuing on 
keeping children connected to culture and you know, maintaining their pride in their identity. Those are really important things that are continuing to happen. I've seen in communities like places in Wilcannia where the communities have, you know, they've set up their own kind of a COVID emergency response committee or group and they've got Aboriginal community leaders in there with services, health services, police, emergency services. So they're starting to coordinate their own efforts. And I just think it just shows us that Aboriginal people have that inherent leadership it's it's in those smaller communities and rural communities our people are able to lead lead on their own solutions and i think beyond the pandemic it just speaks to the need to continue to invest in aboriginal leadership aboriginal governance and certainly a really strong community controlled sector that is well resourced and able to respond because we respond better our services respond better and do better for our people, our communities do better if we're in control and determining our own futures and determining our own needs and and determining the solutions to those challenges. That's what works best. That's what all the evidence says. And I think, you know, the Prime Minister made a, a big announcement at his Closing the Gap speech that he would work in partnership, he would drive his government to work in an equal partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and it's starting to play out in the Closing the Gap agreement with the Coalition of Peace, but we need to see more of it. It needs to go further and it needs to permeate across all government policy and program areas at the federal level, but also at the state and territory levels. You know, the pandemic has just shown, I think, firstly, how vulnerable communities are, but it's also shown how resilient, strong and adaptable we are to, you know, to different situations. It's just that I think the pandemic has caused uh, vulnerability through the broader community as well. But people can learn from what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are doing and how they're responding. There's some great messages in that and so much of that good community work goes unseen. So thanks for putting a bit of a spotlight on it so that it can actually be noticed. Just finally tonight, Richard, obviously there's been big changes for everyone. We're all working differently. You're the CEO of a major peak body and you've had to now do that job from home and think about social distancing, a whole range of things. What have you learned about yourself during this time and particularly how are you dealing with the uncertainty of the period that we're going through? Look, I I think I've personally been very concerned so I've been worried I've had a lot of just been worried about getting sick about my family being sick so I've been really in a way you know frightened about what may happen or what could happen and I've you know you're watching news reports particularly what's going on in the United States and the sort of really lack of leadership the poor leadership that they're getting from their president I mean these things, even though that's at a distance, it does impact, it creates an atmosphere, I think. So on a personal level, I've been really concerned and worried. And I just, to be able to have uh, teleconference hookups with our early childhood services and people working in the child protection space, what they're doing and how they're coping and still, you know, being at the front line and out there delivering services, I found that really inspiring. You know, I think we're coping out. All snake staff are working from home at the moment, so we're using teleconference and televideo link-ups and really adjusting to the novelty of that. So still carrying on our work, but just doing it differently. But we really do, I think, you know, we owe a debt to the people that are, are doing that frontline work 
and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people out there on the front line, it's a risky situation for them. And I just, you know, hope that people are, you know, do stay safe and that we don't get a major outbreak in one of our smaller regional and remote communities where that have high Aboriginal populations. And yeah, just hope that we all come out uh, safe on the other side, and you know, we're ready to, you know, move forward and deal with, you know, whatever the result of the pandemic is. Richard, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out. Thanks a lot, Larissa. Richard Weston is the CEO of the National Secretariat of Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, or SNAKE. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we highlight the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on people living with a disability, what support is needed and how can they get it. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.